right. Sean Boyd of Sight Glass Sellers. You have an event this week, I think. Is This weekend, I think. Is that correct? Yeah, we do our spring release uh, this weekend. Um, I have three wines coming out. Uh, uh, I do an unoaked Chardonnay um, from Central Columbia Valley here in Washington. Uh, I also have a Cabernet Sauvignon Malbec blend uh, and 100% Syrah. Bridles that are pretty common for Washington and ones that people tend to gravitate towards and like a lot. I was reading an article recently about Washington State and in the midst of the Chateau Saint-Michel deciding not to buy a significant amount of fruit that they had been buying before and what that's done with respect to, to growers potentially and the fact that Washington State Livermore Valley, and certainly a lot of California, doesn't have a real varietal focus per se. It can grow a lot of things well, but gets lost sometimes in, in the perception of the wine-consuming public. With w Washington State, I, I hear about it, but I don't know what it is that they do. Describe Washington State, Columbia Valley for us, and tell me what your idea about things is. I think that Washington State is a confusing place for some people because they see Oregon as, say, Pinot Noir uh, and Pinot Gris uh, pretty much in most people's minds. And for Washington, I think that many years ago, Riesling was what would pop into people's mind about Washington State. But um, when I moved up here in uh Let's see, I moved up here in 1986 from the Bay Area. And mm -hmm. when, I, when I noticed here was Merlot was very uh, prevalent. A lot of the big name producers up here, like Woodward Canyon and Leonetti, et cetera, mm -hmm. all made a Merlot. And when I tasted it, I got, I was like, wow, that's, it's really quite nice up here. But then I also noticed that Syrah and Cabernet Sauvignon and Malbec, all these different varieties do well. So it, it's hard to explain what is the main focus. It seems like everybody has a Sauv Blanc today, where mm -hmm. years ago that was not the case. Just a few people did. Of course, Chardonnay is, many people have a Chardonnay, but red-wise, it's the Bordeaux varietals, Syrah Grenache, I say dominate most of the market here. Your so site glass sellers uh, looking over your website and and tasting two wines, excellent wines. We'll talk about in a minute. Your you have a collection of what five or six different grapes that you work with for the most part. Yeah, I work with all the Bordeaux varietals. I don't really work actually. I don't work with the Tiffredo. Pardon me. I'm all back. Cap Franc, Merlot. Capsov. I do Grenache. My rosé that I do every year is Grenache. I do Chardonnay and Sauv Blanc as well. Gotcha. But I think what some people are trying to do in this area, and you see this in Washington, is they're they're doing Nebbiolo and Barbera, mm -hmm. and yeah, it's it, it grows <laughs> yeah. here, and the wines taste yes. okay, but they don't. A lot of times, in my opinion, have varietal characters that I'm used to in Barbera or Nebbiolo. Even the best examples of domestic Nebbiolo, there's a winery in Paso that I think does a really nice job with Nebbiolo, but it doesn't taste like Barbaresco. And it's an interesting, or maybe even more specifically, feel like those 
regional expressions of Nebbiolo in terms of tan and epic. And what, so what, where do you come down on the sort of the importance, varietal specificity, varietal recognizable characteristics in wines in the new world, as it were, in, in a relatively new growing area of Milton Free Water or, or various other parts of Washington, Oregon, Borden, Appalachians, and the expression of young winemakers trying to make something that's their own, that their, reflects their creative desires versus trying to make wines that taste like what the, the average consumer would know as that grape. Good question. I think that there's nothing like in the wine business where people say that I focus on varietal character and sometimes they taste like soda, like sweet, a lot of cola notes. Um, And you mentioned Milton Freewater or the Rocks District, which many people here want to call Washington, but it's actually Oregon. The Walla Valley covers goes into Oregon. But the mm-hmm. Rocks District, which is very distinctive terroir and flavors to it, I think it's grown in popularity because it gives people a, a new flavor to, to try and new styles. Red Mountain is one of our top AVAs in Washington. So I think that people are trying to do that balance of focusing on what is typical. It's like saying, this year we're at normal sunshine or whatever. It's what is normal anymore. Well, Um, true. Good point. Yeah. But people focusing on that balance there as best as they can. But I think one thing that makes Washington stand out is that we do have glacial soils. We have volcanic soils. The Rocks District is that rocky Chateauneuf style uh, river stones kind of thing. So there's that diversity there. Your, you have a really interesting history in wine from a production standpoint. One that I, if I'm not really a jealous person, but I, I can be envious <laughs> at times and can really appreciate what it must have been like to be able to work all over the world as you have before you really settled down in Washington State. Day. You were working in you were working in the Southern Hemisphere. Tell, tell us a little bit about your experience. My father, Gerald Boyd, had mentioned to me a few times that he had been talking with Daryl Broom at Geyser Peak at the right. time. Uh, Daryl had just moved up from Penfolds. And we got a conversation one day and he said, you should go down and work a vintage. And it, without being too exaggerating it was the best move i have made except for getting married to my lovely wife (laughs) the best move i've done in my life probably because i was very hesitant but so 1991 i went down to penfolds and i was the bottom rung cellar rat did 12-hour shifts that whole thing. And I remember thinking at the time, this is the dumbest thing I've ever done before. And then <laughs> I, I turned into just loving it. I thought it was the best thing because every day was new and exciting and creating something. So I got that. I spoke that, the language too, a little bit. Yeah, in a way. <laughs> yeah exactly. And I, and I realized that I had all this money because all I did was go to the pub and drink beer and then go sleep that I could travel all over Australia. And this light bulb went off and I went, why don't I do Northern Hemisphere and Southern Hemisphere next time? 
And at the time, the maybe they still do, but in San Francisco, there was all these flight consolidation places that you would see in the paper where you buy these round-the-world tickets. So I came up with this idea, and I went to Miguel Torres in Spain. Wow. Worked, traveled around Europe and into Asia to Australia and did it again. I worked at Rosemount Estates in, in a, I think it was called Denman, Australia at the time. So I did a couple in Australia, uh, one vintage in New Zealand and, this is me thinking, Portugal. I did a vintage in the Douro Valley and one in Spain. Wow, that's fantastic. There's, yeah. I, there's no better way to learn about how to make wine than actually getting in and doing the work. Right? 100%. Yeah, I have degrees in literature and thought when I went off to college, I was never going to get into the family business. And lo and behold, I found opportunities in the mid-90s and learned at the feet of older winemakers and made a bunch of mistakes and learned, I think, what I was doing and made good wine now, I think. But had my, had my life been a little bit different, that, that kind of itinerant winemaking, especially when you're in your 20s, is a great way of seeing the world and a great way of learning a lot of stuff in a real practical way. Oh, absolutely. And I remember thinking like working with these seller leaders or seller masters down there who were pretty hardcore. Some of the Australian guys down there, they're pretty hardcore at their jobs. And I thought at first, wow, these guys are really stern, but they were just damn good. And right. I learned so much just from that, that real hard on the kill lifting many kilos of tartaric acid, uh, <laughs> right. a few flights of stairs and that kind of <laughs> stuff to it, which I try to avoid now. I get the younger <laughs> folks to do that. Exactly. Everyone's got to pay their dues. Ultimately. Right. When does, when does the idea of wine as a potential profession come into play? So you, you're talking to Daryl Groom, your father is an esteemed long time, very respected wine writer was based in California. He's up in Washington State now as well, I think. When does the idea of being a winemaker enter your consciousness? Maybe the second time when I went to Spain and worked at Miguel Torres, and I really got the sense there of this multi-generational grandfather, father, son, daughter, Miramar Torres. There were so many layers there. And I really thought that was super cool. And I don't know, I, I just feel like that was the point when I started understanding more the vineyards. Because as much as I love Penfolds and everything, it was working for a big operation. I just got in Portugal, I got a different kind of education. because so I was in the vineyards at a couple of their uh, quintas there. And I thought, this is fantastic. I love this. I did a little bit of lab work with them. And that's when I started to think, this is great. And then I, I can't remember the exact moment, but I wanted to head up to Washington. And my dad said, I know two people up there, Bob Beth and David Lake. And I'm like, those are two people to know up there. And so I, I moved up here. And, and Nice. Got into it, yeah. Very distinctive wines from Washington. I, I, my wife is my cellar master and assistant winemaker for our operation. She grew up in Beaverton and worked in Oregon wine for a while before moving down to California. 
And we haven't, I honestly have not had as much Washington State wine yet as I need to have a real grasp about what it is. Yeah, I can certainly, and, and I want to, and, and maybe this is a way to segue in talking about your Cab Francs, but there, there's a definite itness to Washington State wines. There's a different relationship, I think, to fruit and the role that it plays compared to Napa Valley and Livermore in, in a way that yeah. they're, they, they hit me differently. And I'm, I'm intrigued by that, especially with Cab Francs. We tasted your 19 and 21 vintages of Sight Glass Cellars Cab Franc. They're, as I look at the labels, they're both from the same vineyards. Uh, it's a 100% version of Cab Franc. I think it's a 21 vintage that specifies what percentage from each of the vineyards that, it, that the fruit came from. 19 shows the same two sites. What is it about Cab Franc or what role does Cab Franc play in your portfolio and in your mind as a winemaker? You've noticed the progression of we realized that we didn't put the percentages on the 19. So our <laughs> progress was to actually put it on the 20. We did on the 20 as well. But Cap Franc plays the biggest role now. It's become my best known wine. What like when people come in and talk to us or say they've been recommended to come in here for Reds, it's about Cap Franc. And I remember when Cab Franc was just, people had this look on their face, like a big question mark, huh? Cab Franc? And you're seeing so much <clears throat> more of it now, 100% varietal than you ever did. I go back to a place called Woodenville Wine Cellars that started in the early 2000s here. And I was their winemaker for about 16 years. And I did 100% Cab Francs then. Mm. that people were oh, they kept mentioning like wow i never see this but where it comes from like in our portfolio i think it's our most important red right now because people have really gotten into it and i think that washington style or you've probably noticed with my style is it's fuller it's on the definitely new world it's on the richer style we do not lack sugar shine during harvest season so there's that balance of getting some of that bridal character in there we, we, we talked about earlier and keeping alcohols as balanced as possible but that's our most important wine at this point How, what's your relationship personally as a wine drinker to Capron? do you like the variety i do i have this memory Let's say this is about 15, 16 years ago. I got to go on a trip down to Napa Valley and we were standing at Pride Mountain mm -hmm. and we were talking to, wow, his name just popped out of my head. The first winemaker there. Yeah, name escapes me too at the moment. Anyway, and he was pouring us different Cap Francs. And I was just like, wow, this is so good. And then I think just after that, I had this opportunity. I was in France. And I went to Chenon and that whole area there. I was just like, I, I had never seen such a vast stylistic difference, uh, in my opinion, to this day. I think that Grenache has been closer in style in some areas, but wow, Cap Franc was just like, wow, that's so different. So that, I like that diversity. Samora and Chinon are very different than 
in the Bay Area, different than Washington State in terms of soil, everything. The terror is very different there. And I, I those wines, I came on Cavalier Way, tasting wines from a Berkeley wine shop from Chenal and Bordeaux, and just realizing in the early 2000s, these wines have a an edgy to them. They have a varietal, a set of varietal characteristics that are just stunningly in, in wines and they have an energy to them that's really undeniable to me and it's always been it's the spiritual home i think to, for cab franc anyway but for me it's certainly a guiding light in terms of style and the like we can't be loire valley in california nor i think can you be in, in washington state but you can certainly look at those wines and man i there there's a way of there's a way of showcasing cabernet franc varietal characteristic in a denser frame, like I think you have done, and like what we have done, I think, to a certain degree as well, but still maintain Cabernet Francness, which is important. Yeah, that's ultimately what I'm going for. And and if you see on the labels there, the two main vineyards I'm working with, Stillwater Creek Vineyard and Connor Lee, are only about 28 miles distance from each other. We're talking central Columbia Valley, Stillwater Creek falls within a, an ABA called the Royal Slope right now, which is a fairly new one for Washington State. But the styles of the Cap Franc that come from these give me that diversity. because uh, The Connor Lee, to me, has more of an old school, a bit more of that green pepper underlying tone to it, which I personally will add in smaller amounts. So it's typically... On the one that doesn't say it's twenty percent, okay. On the night, and I think it's twenty-five on the other one, or it's eight. It's eighteen on the twenty-one vintage. Yes. Okay. And so that Stillwater Creek Vineyard just produces Cap Franc that has a richer, darker fruit to it, more of that cherry tones to it than it does herbal or green flavors is it a are those differences a function of site a function are the vineyard are the vineyards very different for, as far as terroir goes yes so the stillwater creek is fractured rock it's a steep slope there that's what he always describes as windblown lows or lows whatever uh-huh. how you want to pronounce it and the Stillwater, or Connor Lee, excuse me, is a very flat vineyard in an area that it reminds me of walking on a beach. And I, if you don't mind, I'm going to, I have here. So Cabernet Franc was planted in 1991 in uh, Connor Lee. Okay. Uh, yeah. So this is, hey, this is old vine for Washington. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Livermore Valley, too, at this point in time. Yeah, Do you know which clones? Yeah, it's 333 on the Stillwater. Um, okay. I'm trying to remember what they call. Okay, so this currently, they, they call it loamy fine sand to very fine sandy loam. So it's Got it's you. totally that beach feel and it's very flat there so it, it does uh, have a tendency to be cooler we're talking just by degrees however the difference is you just get that more 
what I would call green tones to it, or just a little more of that varietal characteristic of minerality, green. The uh, kind of gravelly notes and say and those kinds of notes are not, they didn't have me when I was tasting the wines to be bell peppery, that real fresh green. There was a definite herbal edge there that I liked a lot, but they, it was more sort of fresh herb, not yeah. tarragon exactly, but some fresh herb notes that were really interesting. Do you, how do you compare the two vintages? We've had a string of warm to hot vintages going on since about 2011, which was the coldest on record. I believe okay. to this day for Washington State. So 21 was a vintage where we had a, a heat dome here, which I actually tell people that I remember when frost <laughs> is what was washed. Really, frost was like Washington's things. That's what you watched out for. And now it's smoke, heat domes, yep. you name it. And so yep. 21, we have this extreme heat event in June, shattered some uh, clusters like on the tips of them. So we just had less to work with. And varietals like Cabernet Franc and Cabernet Sauvignon in some areas experienced like a 30% decline in tonnage per acre. However, the quality then ended up being very nice. I think 21 had this kind of strangely balance to it for having these heat. And if I remember correctly, I think 21 had a very cold winter. And so mm -hmm. there was a bit of frost damage in some areas. I don't know if you've heard about this for this year. I think the Okanagan Valley is 100% loss. No uh, kidding. Wow. I heard that. Yeah. Yeah. The wow. Okanagan Valley in, in uh, BC. I've read a few things. It's a, they're at a hundred percent loss from this frost that we had back in January and some areas of Washington, we're still looking at bud samples really marches. Now it's, we're getting to the point now where we're going to start finding out more about how right. extensive the damage is. But I'm also hearing not confirmed, but more areas like the rocks district, which are very mm -hmm. low lying, uh, had a lot more frost damage. That's interesting. Interesting. Yeah. I, I, when I was tasting these two wines and thinking about kind of Cabernet Franc, which to me is you know, perhaps the most aromatically distinctive and complex variety that you find out there. And I think about how Cab Franc smells and tastes. It has a feel to it as well. There's a minerality to it, a, a gravelly note in terms of tannin and flavor and the like. But I look at the fruit aspect of Cab Franc, I look at the herbal aspect of Cab Franc, the earthiness, that kind of gravelly sense, and whatever wood there may be that's more about a winemaker's decision than it is about endemic characteristics of the variety. And these two vintages to me are quite different. I like them both. I thought 19 was a shire, a wine on entry and aromatically. To me, 19 was a little more old, more Bordeaux-like perhaps than Loire Valley-like in beautiful structure, didn't scream Cab Franc. 21, on the other hand, was a lot more fruit dominant to me and a lot more of that kind of 
herbal and some Loire Valley-esque kind of aromatic quality intensity to the wine. So I, I like the, the fact that the wines were very distinctive, very Cab Franc-y, but that they also differed from each other in a way. Was 19 a very different vintage than 21 weather-wise? Yeah, sorry, I just uh, talked about 21 there, but 19 was more what I would call just uncommon, not unchanged from a lot of the vintages before it. I thought 19 was, we had a, a lot of warmth. It was a good year for fruit set. We were... For me, I just had a, a pretty, <laughs> I know I said this before, but normal harvest <laughs> that year and didn't have the heat dome on those kind of like the early winter frosts that we did in 21. For me, maybe it's the lack of events in 19 versus 21 being a little bit more challenging. I think 19 has more new wood on it, which I believe was about 60% on the 19 and about 40, I think 40% on the 21, 40 or 50%. Okay. Yeah. All, all French? All French oak. Yeah. I, I mainly use Eddie Sylvain now, but I have the Car Cadiz as well. Sure. Barrels we used to use a lot for Pinot Noir making when we were doing Pinot Noir from the San Lucia Highlands. I, I really like the wines. I'm looking forward to the progression of the wines. What does Cabernet Franc mean, Sean? I think Cabernet Franc is a teaching tool. I think that I still have people that come in and they think Cabernet Sauvignon. You can say the words Cabernet Franc and you're you're teaching them about this varietal so it's a it's educational to newer palates i think it's educational to palates that have been tasting wine for a while because they've been tasting so many syrahs and cabernet sauvignons um i think it's also a an opportunity i think cab franc to me is also a great blending grape because I also do a little bit. I have a wine that I just call our red blend that always has about 30% Franc in it. And it represents that, that ingredient that you're adding to your cooking, your recipe that makes all the difference. I think the Cap Franc is that, that magic ingredient, that important ingredient in the end. And so I guess I would just call it the a very educational grape for us. Beautiful. Thanks right. so much. We'll talk to you soon. Okay. Thank you so much.